Welcome back to the Facts About PACs podcast. I'm Michaela Isler, NAPAC's Executive Director, and I'm joined on the number one PAC podcast in America by my co-host, Adam Belmar. On today's show, we have what we like to call in the podcast game, a big get. A chance for all of you to hear directly from one of Washington's most experienced and sought-after lobbyists, Bruce Melman. Adam, Bruce is a partner at Melman Castagnetti, one of the nation's most innovative government relations firms, where he provides strategic solutions to companies, trade associations, nonprofits, and entrepreneurs to help them succeed in Washington. Coming up, a discussion with Bruce Melman about what he calls the counter-revolutions driving politics and policy and the four key backlashes to recent trends that businesses and investors must understand and navigate to succeed in 2023 and 2024. Adam, just a perfect topic for everyone seeking to navigate political risk in the coming cycle. The Facts About PACs podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NAP activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community. And today's episode is brought to you by Public Affairs Support Services. They have been keeping PACs on track for 38 years, from preparing and filing your FEC and state reports to managing your PAC match program and hosting your PAC website. The employee owners at Public Affairs Support Services make your PAC programs their business. Thanks, Adam, and thanks to our sponsor, Public Affairs Support Services, for sponsoring today's episode. PASS has been a longtime supporter of NABPAC, and we're thrilled they could be with us today. So joining us now is Bruce Melman, a highly sought-after keynote speaker on policy and political trends, regularly headlining business conferences and strategic planning sessions. He is a graduate of Princeton University and the University of Virginia School of Law and served as Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Technology Policy under President George W. Bush, in addition to working as a senior leadership aide in the House of Representatives and as general counsel to a national political party committee. Bruce Melman, thank you so much for joining us on the Facts About PACs podcast. I'm grateful for the invitation. Thanks for having me. Bruce, your quarterly infographic analysis are consistently picked up by national media and always command attention in C-suites and Washington offices of companies across the country. Recently, you shared backlash, the counter-revolutions driving politics and policy. And in that presentation, you outlined four key backlashes to recent trends that businesses and investors must understand to navigate and to succeed in 2023 and 2024. What are they? I see four uh, big macro swings. One's political, one's cultural, one's market one's technological. Politically, Democrats have had unified control for two years. Uh, It seems overwhelmingly likely the House of Representatives becomes Republican controlled. The Senate is too close to call, but that's going to have a big impact on politics and policy and how businesses operate going forward. You know, culturally, uh, the ESG DEI movements have had uh, debatably, but I'd argue wins at their back since the great financial collapse all the way for sure through the murder of George Floyd and a lot that went on in 2020. But we're starting to see pushback. I know we'll get into that in a moment. On the markets, since debatably the Greenspan Fed in 98, we've been in an era of easy money with uh, with disinflationary forces and low interest rates led by central banks having a big impact on what businesses could afford to do and how they thought uh, it was far more important to grow uh, users than to get profitable for a while. 
And then technologically, uh, where we're seeing uh, business models that presumed the Chimerica, you know, that China was a great place for just in time disinflationary supply chains and it was a market you were going to be able to access and that policymakers thought what's good for the Internet is good for America. And, uh, and those are changing as well. Bruce, so you caution that ESG may get harder. Why is that? And, and what should practitioners be on the lookout for? Uh, well, let's take it E, S, and G one at a time. So environmentally, um, while we know long-term a combination of climate and for that matter, geopolitics will make things harder in the short term, um, whatever your carbon targets are, you'd rather use allied coal than Russian gas. And so- uh, we're in a short-term environment, particularly where Europe, which has been a leader on a lot of the environmental transition efforts, is now realizing they've got to not mothball the nuclear plants, which, by the way, was always stupid from an ESG perspective because they're carbon zero. Um, but all of a sudden now they're looking to not freeze in the winter and to not have uh, rolling blackouts shut down their economy. Um, so that f- you've got that. You've got energy inflation in the United States. Um, where maybe we need to not try to make uh, end fossil fuel. Maybe we need to invest in more fracking and fossil fuel domestically for a while. Uh, and then you also have the SEC uh, trying to crack down on what they perceive as greenwashing. And they're going to have a set of tougher standards. So for those pushing E, you're going to have to meet newer, st- uh, stricter regulations from the SEC and in Europe regulatorily. You've got the geopolitical consideration and you've got the fact that energy is costing a lot more. For the S, um, the social aspects of ESG, you're seeing nations, you know, China has long punished people who say bad things about China. And so you might want to focus on civil rights in the United States, but you're kind of quiet if you're a business about human rights in China with the Uyghurs, because even though the you know, UN and State Department have said it's genocide, because that would get you kicked out and shut down in China. You know, at the state level, you're seeing uh, increasingly, particularly red states, uh, pushing back and saying if, uh, if you know, you don't want to do business uh, with companies that are based and headquartered here because they're in fossil fuels, then we won't do business with you, uh, investment banks. Um, and you're also finding on the social front, the issues are getting harder. I mean, I just personally don't think there are two sides to the murder of George Floyd. That was horrible and hideous. O- on an issue like uh, when does a human life begin? You know, the, the, the polling suggests about a 60-40 about whether Roe v. Wade was right or wrong. And while that's, you know, 60-40 a clear majority, um, if you, you don't want to uh, alienate or, or, or uh, upset 40% of your workforce or 40% of your customers. So these issues are, are, are divisive and hard. On the G, on the governance, you know, we'd seen a lot of the, uh, the proxy voting uh, state streets and vanguards and, 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 uh, and investors, investment banks that own you know, that, that often have voted the shares that they might hold on behalf of uh, investors, particularly through index funds, there's a lot of pushback about why do they have the right to vote those. I think we're going to see fiduciary duty lawsuits against companies that shareholders say are undermining shareholder value by focusing on social causes. And, you know, ESG, some would say, was a, uh, was a luxury you could afford when profits were at 50-year highs as they were a year ago but we're almost surely facing a global recession. That'll make business pressures grow, and that may make it harder um, for, uh, for businesses to get outside the lane of trying to you know, keep profits. Bruce, our audience is familiar 
with the headwinds that come with political action and working with people, stakeholders. And fundraising is often the name of the game, but in the name of the policies and the principles that are true to their business, that can help them in the communities that they operate. How do you see something like the culture wars that are happening? How does that face business? How should we be thinking about that as we go into the next cycle? Well, whether they wanted to or not, businesses are increasingly being brought into a lot of the more divisive social and cultural fights by their employees, by their customers, uh, by uh, the uh, states in which they operate. Uh, and I think businesses that sort of hope maybe everything will leave them alone uh, are uh, are operating on hope alone. And hope's not a strategy, which, which doesn't mean by the way, that every business should think of themselves as an NGO and, and need a division of social activism. I think that would be a mistake too. Um, the, we've worked, a lot of our clients have struggled with the questions of do we weigh in? When do we weigh in? How do we weigh in in a way that, you know, that continues to maximize the business's ability to attract and retain the best employees and to successfully maintain a license to operate in red states and blue and democracies and, and, and less democratic locations. It's hard. And it requires more focus and more work and more assessment of geopolitical risk and more planning um, at the and we you know we spend a lot of time with folks on this. But at the macro level, I tend to have three broad pieces of advice. One, it's a team sport. So on a lot of these issues, I tend to think it's better unless the issue aligns in a unique way with your brand. So you think there is a, an advantage to being out there alone. Um, try to uh, collaborate with others across your industry, others in your town, others in your city. Um, There's strength in numbers. And likewise, look at your internal team. And if your internal team is, you know, four white men between 55 and 65, you're not getting the diversity of viewpoint and understanding and perspective that will help you make the smartest decisions. Uh, Number two, plan. Um, so many of these things you can do tabletop exercises or, or think through scenarios. And I, I've been hired by some clients to help them to just walk them through scenarios. And everybody thinks, you know, every, it's like the old Mike Tyson. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the nose. Um, it's uh, pe- companies think they know how to deal with it. And then the, the hard issue comes and, you know, in the crosswinds, they didn't really think about, but they would have thought about if they had done a better job planning. And, and by doing planning, you end up having a lot of dialogues that are happening all the time and you thereby avoid getting kind of buffeted by the Twitter news cycle, which usually leads to dumb statements and decisions. And instead allows for folks to have, you know, you have a rubric, you have a team, uh, you have processes, you understand that things are never as simple as they seemed at first. Uh, the last thing I always recommend is that actions speak louder than words. And so, your strategy shouldn't be that from time to time we're going to weigh in publicly on public policy, you know, hideous fights that are on Twitter and in the major news and in Congress or state legislatures. Um, rather, who are the stakeholders that you ma- that matter to you and how are you engaging with them when there isn't a Twitter crisis? And maybe we want to do things uh, preemptively, maybe the way to stay out of the culture war fights that we don't want to be in. We're a business. We're not culture warriors. But the way to stay out of them is to demonstrate our commitment to stakeholders when there aren't culture war uh, wolves at the door. Uh, And so just to pick on one, if you care about voting rights, and I hope most people do, why don't you make sure your employees have resources so they know how to register to vote? Maybe they deserve paid time off the vote. Uh, But there are things you can do that actually matter. Likewise, 
you know, you can weigh in with amicus briefs at the Supreme Court on on healthcare issues, or you can make sure your employees have great health benefits. There is specific history to consider, Bruce, as we look at the possible takeover of both chambers of Congress by Republicans on November 8th. What should we all know about the last four times the GOP captured Congress during a Democratic presidency? Well, so I'm a history nerd and and the quarterly analyses that I published and you were nice to talk about at the beginning there, Michaela, are replete with lots of historical examples um, you know, whether it's uh, in the Gilded Age or or, uh, or where deglobalization came from. Uh, what we find is when Republicans take over Congress and Democrats hold the White House, you have several things. Um, you have uh, the agencies get more aggressive because the phone and the pen are what the White House sees as the ways to get things done. You have oversight and overdrive, um, which is clearly coming again. Um, as uh, as Congress tries to use its oversight power to uh, to to bring an administration to heel, and you have fiscal fights, um, particularly when you think about and again history nerd alert. But the last four times Republicans took the House when the Democrats were holding in the holding the White House, it was after crises. So after World War One and Spanish flu, where spending had gone way up. You then had a Republican Congress come in trying to hit the brakes. And so they established the government, uh, the GAO having a controller who the president couldn't remove. They ta- they cut taxes, but they tried to clamp down on spending. After World War II, um, in 1946, Republicans captured ha- the House just like they did in 1919. Uh, they demanded big 8 to 12 percent spending cuts against Truman's budget, and they passed tax cuts over Truman's veto. Um, when uh, Bill Clinton in 94 lost the House and the Senate, um, you had government shutdown in 1995 and 96, the Balanced Budget Act in 1997, and again, Republicans being Republicans, tax cuts in 95 and 97. When President Obama um, lost the House in 2010, uh, you had uh, fights over debt ceiling lead to the so-called super committee, big spending cuts. Um, and then in 2013, there was the, uh, there was the uh, shutdown of the government over the mistaken belief that maybe if they shut the government down, Republicans could cause the uh, Affordable Care Act to get repealed, which they didn't. Um, But all that tells me fiscal fights are coming back in 2023. Bruce, keeping everything you've already detailed in mind, what actionable advice do you have for GR teams and PAC professionals when it comes to navigating in an age of disruption? Well, I guess I'd point to three things that particularly your listeners and, and the GR function, and for that matter, C-suites need to be need to remember. Number one, you better stay engaged. Congress is more productive than you think. You watch uh, Fox or, or MSNBC and you think nothing happens bipartisan at all. And yet look at this last Congress. In the Senate, there were 69 votes for the infrastructure bill. That's seriously bipartisan. 65 for guns, 88 for the last defense authorization, 79 for postal reform, 64 for chips. Um, I think you're going to you saw a bipartisan um, support for the Respect for Marriage Act in the House, and I remain hopeful you're going to see it in the Senate. I'm hopeful I'm hopeful for the Electoral Count Act reform, too. Um, they're getting things done in a bipartisan fashion. Uh, that's not what the news tends to lead with, because, you know, the news wants controversy. The, the, if it bleeds, it leads remains true in newsrooms. Um, and so it feels like not a lot's getting done. But if you take a look at the actual um, money getting spent and, a comp- and bills getting passed, there is a ton getting done. And I think the next Congress, the 118th, will continue to have opportunities. Yeah, they're going to fight a ton and that's going to get all the press. But 
Um, you ignore them at your peril. So you got to stay engaged. Number two, I think the, the big broad trends are still the big broad trends. You know, we knew as a result of climate change, there was an energy transition happening globally. I think um, it was uh, it was going to happen because of climate. It's now imperative because of geopolitics. You know, in the places that that control a lot of fossil fuels, including Russia or uh, or Saudi or Nigeria, are not always uh, geopolitically aligned with us. So uh, you can bank on a medium and long term energy transition. U.S. China competition is growing. Um, we saw a decoupling starting even before the pandemic. It was accelerated by the pandemic. It's further accelerated by Russia, Ukraine, but you should presume that it will be harder to do business in and with and receive things from China over the next decade. Disruptive innovation. Technology was accelerated through the pandemic. And while I don't think we're all going to be working from home and you know living now with legs in Zuckerberg's metaverse, um, Every technology, every business is being reinvented and reimagined by technology. It's like what happened with electricity 100 plus years ago. That's happening. Finally, our population, our, our, our demographics are changing where we're becoming more diverse. We're becoming more inclusive. We're also becoming older. And for that matter, we're also less healthy than we were before. And so those are the longer term trends that aren't going to be changed by Republicans capturing the House. The final uh, big, big picture lesson is you've got to, you know, th there are lessons to, to learn. Disney's fight with DeSantis being a pretty good example of what not to do. And I have a pretty uh, exhaustive slide at the end of the, the deck that you mentioned that tries to highlight where I think they made some uh, missteps and, and lessons that I hope my clients learn from that. Some great stuff to think about and learn from here. Bruce Melman, partner. Melman Castagnetti, thank you for being our guest on the Facts About Packs podcast. Michaela, I'm grateful for the invitation. Thanks for inviting me to the show and uh, keep up the great work. And thanks to everyone downloading and sharing the Facts About Packs podcast. Subscribe and meet us right back here next week.